chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. You follow along as I read God's word. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the fountain of living water. And we come this morning and we need to take a drink from you. Lord, we come dry. uh, We come weary. We need to be encouraged. And we pray this morning that as we look at your word, as we see your beauty and your glory, that it would encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So every good company has a well-defined mission statement. A mission statement is a statement of purpose. It basically reveals the reason for existing. And the statement is meant to guide the actions of the company. Uh, It's meant to spell out the overall goal. And it really gives the company a paradigm by which to evaluate whether or not they're on target. This week, I, I looked at some mission statements from some of the world's top companies. And Disney if you didn't know, exists to create happiness. Google, their mission in this world is to make the world's information universally accessible. Toys R Us, which would be a fun place to work, exists to be the worldwide authority on fun. Walmart, as many of you know, exists to save people money so that they can live better. And you athletes might know that Nike exists to bring inspiration to every athlete in the world. Like a good mission statement is always simple, crisp, and narrow in focus. And if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know that we're a place that talks a lot about mission. This is a place that talks a lot about mission. And I wonder if you've ever considered what the mission statement of a Christian should be. If you were given the opportunity to craft that statement this morning, I wonder how you would craft it. I believe that the Bible comes and actually gives us a mission statement for the Christian life. It's it's what's often called the greatest commandment, and we read it actually in our passage this morning. It's a statement that basically sums up the entirety of the Old Testament. It's a statement that sums up the entirety of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a statement that sums up what you and I should be doing with our lives. And it's found in verse 27 of our passage. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Look, the Christian's reason for existence, the overall goal, the paradigm for all of the evaluation is love for God and love for neighbor. And it's not revolutionary. In fact, it's pretty simple. Love both in our vertical and in our horizontal relationships. And with that in mind, we can kind of turn now and ask, how are we doing? Knowing our mission statement, how are we doing? Are we on the trajectory to actually meet and accomplish our mission? Look, there's lots of things that pull us away from this simple mission of love. Some of us get off track because we're overly concerned with theological precision. And theological precision is important. But a lot of us, especially in our tradition, tend to think that orthodoxy, right belief, is more important than orthopraxy, right practice. And deeds of love are considered less important than what we believe. Others of us get off track because we tend to be focused on the culture wars that rage all around us. And it's important to have opinions on these things. Things like abortion and same-sex marriage and education policy. But oftentimes, if you're anything like me, you're so busy focused on fighting the war that you're blinded to the real needs and hurts of the other people on the other side of the war. Others of us uh, can't love, can't accomplish this mission because we're just self-absorbed. I mean, we crave comfort for ourselves. We're fearful of risk. Our schedules are so overpacked that it really pushes out any possibility of showing love for other people in any meaningful way. We're prideful. Most of us are kind of apathetic when it comes to this mission of love. As we look at the world around us and as we look at our own hearts, it turns out that this simple mission statement of love is really anything but simple. But what would it look like for you and I to get back on track this morning? To refocus on this primary mission of love for God and love for others. I think that our passage this morning actually gives us that opportunity. It's a passage that refocuses us on what it means to truly love through our actions, through our deeds. And as we attempt to get back on track this morning, I want to ask this passage three quick and simple questions. First, who should we love? Second, we're going to spend a few minutes on what does love look like? And last, we're going to look quickly at how do we learn to love? First, who should we love? The passage begins with a lawyer that stands up to test Jesus. And this isn't the typical type of lawyer that we conceive of today. This was an expert in the Old Testament law. The first five books of our Bible. And he stands up and he asks Jesus a question. He asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we see from the passage that it's not a heartfelt question. It was a test. You see, this lawyer knew that Jesus had been hanging around sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and he wanted to trap Jesus in his theology. Basically, this lawyer wanted to know if Jesus was orthodox. His life seemed to point in a different direction, and he wanted to know, was Jesus orthodox? And we see in the passage that Jesus, like he often does, actually doesn't answer the question. Instead, what he does is he turns around and asks a question in response. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Basically, Jesus here is asking for a summary of the law, and for this lawyer, it's an easy answer, straight from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He could, he could say it in his sleep. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Because when it comes to theological precision, this lawyer is there. And his ducks are all in a row. He knows the right answers, and Jesus even recognizes it by saying, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And at that point, the lawyer knew what Jesus was doing. He was setting up a standard that the lawyer knew that he could never meet. And he starts to think, let's be reasonable here. Let's be reasonable here, Jesus. How far do I really have to go? As the lawyer feels the tension of obeying perfectly, he tries to make himself feel better by asking, who's my neighbor? Who do I really have to love? And that's when Jesus answers his question with a story about a Samaritan. And the Samaritan is really the hero of this story, a man who meets basic human needs. I mean, it's what we would call holistic ministry. We see holistic ministry here, medical ministry, physical ministry, emotional ministry, relational, even transportational ministry, putting him on his donkey, giving him a ride to the inn. And the fact that a Samaritan was helping a Jewish man would have been shocking to these first century listeners. Likely you've heard about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans if you've been in church for any amount of time. But the best way to understand the relationship between Jews and Samaritans is to think, well, that's the east. Now, stop and think, how did he do that? Was he carrying a first aid kit? Probably not. Likely had to use his own garments. Taking the shirt off of his own back to bandage the bloody wounds. He soothes the wounds with his own oil and disinfects the wounds with his own wine which basically meant that this uh, man was going to have no more wine for the rest of his trip, no more comfort for the rest of his journey. The Samaritan comes and he loads the man on his own animal, this bloody man, not concerned about the cleanup. It'd be almost like you and I driving, seeing somebody half dead on the side of the road and loading them in to the back of our car and ruining our leather interior. Um, Not concerned about the cleanup, also not concerned that he's going to have to walk the rest of the way while this Jewish man gets the ride. The Samaritan takes this man to an inn and cares for him through the night, staying with him and making sure that his needs are met. And when he leaves, he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which would have been enough for room and board for 24 days. And on top of that, he actually says, I'm going to come back and repay you whatever else you spend, basically writing a blank check so that this man will be cared for. On top of all this, you've got to think that the Samaritan would have been giving up his time. He had somewhere to be after all. His emotional energy, his safety, robbers were likely still there on the road. And most importantly, his reputation. I mean, Samaritans were not supposed to be those that he could love, offering service, risking everything. I mean, the Samaritan didn't wonder like you and I often do when it comes to mercy. I wonder what this person did to bring this situation upon themselves. Or I wonder 